Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another podcast by Mind Valley. I'm so excited about today's guest because a couple of weeks ago, I released a short mini podcast episode, around 15 minutes, where I spoke about how much my life has been enhanced because I got it out of my head that sleep was a sign of laziness or was something that highly productive people tried to optimize. In fact, what I started doing was actually sleeping more. And I got tons of feedback from you guys. It became one of our most listened to episodes, tons of questions. And this whole fascination with sleep doesn't end there. And so what I wanted to do was bring to you a really special guest, Dr. Michael Bruce. He's the youngest person to pass the sleep medical board in the United States. He's one of only 168 people in the world who has ever taken the sleep medicine board without going to medical school. He has a private practice as a sleep specialist. He is the author of three Amazon best-selling books and founder of thesleepdoctor.com. Michael, how are you? I am well-rested, and it sounds like you are too, my friend. (laughs) So let's get started on this, Michael. Our audience is fascinated by sleep, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on is because, you know, like many of us out there, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a busy, busy, busy person, and I tend to follow a lot of coaches, a lot of advisors, a lot of people with followings on Instagram and Facebook, and it seems that in America today, there's this hustle idea. There's this idea that work is about hustling. It's about the hours you put in. And uh, I've never seen anyone talk about the opposite of that, or at least extensively talk about the opposite of that, which is the importance of rest and rejuvenation. And that's what I'd like to have you speak to us about, the importance of sleep, the importance of rest, and how to use sleep as a way to boost your productivity and cognitive performance. You're preaching to the choir, my friend, because that's my main focus. So I've been an actively practicing sleep specialist now for 19 years, and it's been really an interesting journey because when I first started out, everybody who slept was lazy, right? Everybody who, you know, really valued their time in bed was seen as nonproductive. And especially in the United States, it's such a go, go, go kind of environment. And what we really know is that productivity, wellness, health, fundamentally cannot be without sleep. I always tell people all the time, you can last three days without water, you can last 30 days without food, you can last seven days without sleep. So if you're looking at it from a hierarchical standpoint, sleep is it, man. Sleep is one of the basic needs that everybody needs, and it really helps with literally everything. Now, tell us about the importance of sleep. Firstly, how do we know that we are sleeping enough? This is an important question, and I've actually got some tips for people around this. So everybody's sleep need is different, okay? So eight hours is a myth. Let's just start right there. Not everybody needs eight hours. I'll tell you what my sleep pattern is. I go to bed around midnight, I wake up around 6, 6.30, and I sleep approximately between six and six and a half hours a night. And I'm the sleep doctor, right? I mean, this is crazy, right? It's really not crazy. Believe it or not, you can actually look this up genetically if you want to, but everybody's sleep need is different and that need changes over the course of time. So one of the concepts that I developed very early on in my practice, and I talk about it quite often, is what I call my bedtime calculator. 
So most of us know that we have a wake up time that is set. So for example, because our kids have to go to school or we have to get up for work or something like that. So that's what I call your socially determined wake up time. We also know that the average sleep cycle is approximately 90 minutes long and the average individual has approximately five of those sleep cycles. So if you take five times 90, that's 450 minutes or roughly seven and a half hours. Then you take your socially determined wake up time and you count backwards by seven and a half hours and this gives you your new bedtime. So just to do the math, if you take me as an example, if I wake up at 6.30, then I should be going to bed at 11. Make sense? Right. Mm -hmm. But what did I just tell you? I just told you a second ago that I go to bed at 12 and I get up at 6.30. So let me explain to everybody why there's a difference there. So I tried this experiment on myself and it failed miserably. I went to bed at 11 and I woke up at 5.30. I went to bed at 11 and I woke up at 5.30. My body doesn't want to sleep more than six and a half hours. So what did I do? I just scooched my bedtime to midnight. Now I wake up at 6.30 and it worked out perfect for me. I went into the sleep laboratory to figure out what was going on because I thought, oh my gosh, maybe there's something wrong with me. It turns out that my sleep cycle isn't 90 minutes like most people's. My sleep cycle turns out to be approximately 78 minutes, which is what shortened me down to a six and a half hour sleep. So everybody's sleep need is different. But running this little experiment is actually quite good because if you find that you go to bed at your calculated bedtime and you wake up without an alarm five minutes before you're supposed to, then guess what? You figured it out. You now know what time to go to bed and what time to wake up. But if you need an alarm, maybe you need to go to bed a little bit earlier. If you wake up an hour earlier like I did, maybe you need to go to bed a little bit later. So Michael, so then what you're suggesting that we do is to identify our optimal sleep cycle by choosing to go to bed, say at 11, between 11 and 12, and without an alarm, seeing at what time we consistently wake up for a few days in a row. Exactly. Fantastic. I like that idea. Now, is there anything that causes a variation in the sleep pattern? For example, I've noticed that if I've had a really, really, really busy week, right? The following week, I'm comfortable with around eight hours. If I don't set my alarm, I go into eight hours, but ordinarily it's seven and a half hours. Is that my imagination or does your body require more sleep at certain points? So here's the good news is you're not imagining this. You're actually being very accurate and very astute. This happens to me as well. So if you have a very, what I call heavy cognitive load, right? So you're busy, you're working, you've got a lot of thinking to do, a lot of decisions to make. It actually takes up more energy in your brain and your brain really needs that rejuvenation time. And so it may require more sleep on a certain week. You might also find that as an example, if you're coming down with a cold, then you might need more sleep at a given week. You might find that if you're traveling all around the world, which both you and I have a tendency to do quite a bit, jet lag can have an effect on your sleep in terms of you know when your body wants to sleep and when your body doesn't want to sleep. Also, as we age, we see that this number can change as well, as well as our timing of sleep. It's kind of interesting when you think about timing because there are these things out there called chronotypes, which are our internal biological rhythms that are actually genetically set, and those can have an effect on us as well. Now, let's talk about sleep and health. I just got back from a camping trip in Croatia. Now, the problem was that when you're on a camping trip in Croatia with the wind, with the sun, because it's the middle of the summer here right now, right? So the sun rises early and sets late. So you have this constant sunrise, and I wasn't able to get more than five to six hours of sleep. Now, I read somewhere that when you don't get enough sleep, your immunity can go down by as much as 500%. And sure enough, I caught a cold. 
And I suspect that I caught the cold because I wasn't sleeping more than five to six hours for four days straight. I decided to try an experiment. I came home to Estonia, which is where I am right now. And I decided to go for four days straight with eight and a half hours of sleep, which is about an hour and a half more than I normally need. And what I found is that, boom, it pulled me right out of that illness. Now, this was, of course, my personal experiment, but I'm wondering if there's any signs to this. I want to hear the data. Is that data that immunity goes down when you don't sleep? And is that data that you can recover from illnesses faster with more sleep? Yes, there is. There's quite a bit of data looking at immune function and sleep. There's a great study out of the University of Chicago. And what they discovered was is they took a group of people who were well-rested and they gave them the flu vaccine. Then they took a group of people that had been sleep deprived, similar to your experience, only sleeping three to four hours for several days in a row, then gave them the flu vaccine. They took both groups and they exposed them to the flu. What they discovered is that the group that was well-slept was immune to the flu and didn't actually get the flu. The group that had had low sleep the week before, a very large percentage of them not only contracted the flu, but it was a really bad one. And in one case actually had to be hospitalized. So it's amazing how sleep has a direct effect on our immune function. Now, if you wanna take that one step further, then you look at recovery, which is what you're asking about as well. And 100%. Think about it. Everybody out there should think about if you've ever gotten uh, illness, cold, flu, what have you, what does your body want to do? It wants to lay in bed. It wants to sleep. It wants you to hang out and recover. And during that recovery process, that's when our immune system can really kick into gear. So your little experiment is actually backed up with a tremendous amount of data. Phenomenal. Okay, so the important thing there for the people who are listening is that if you aren't getting enough sleep, you do risk a lowering of your immunity, and thus getting sick. And so you're going to see more sick days if you aren't getting the requisite amount of sleep. There's actually even data on looking at both absenteeism and presenteeism in different workplace situations. We now know that sleep deprivation leads to a tremendous amount of absenteeism because people aren't feeling good. Also, we're right now we're talking primarily about physical health, but we should also consider mental health as well. Sleep has a direct effect on anxiety, on depression, on moodiness. Literally, everything you do, you do better with a good night's sleep. I see. Wow. Okay, so not only are you seeing your immunity go down by close to 500%, and that, by the way, I think is a number I got from the book Eat, Move, Sleep, which is a great book. But what you're saying is it also affects your emotional states. Now, let's talk about cognition, because I do remember reading in Eat, Move, Sleep by Tom Rapp that... Your cognition can go down by as much as one third if you cut your sleep by 19 minutes. I know. Isn't that crazy? It's kind of a crazy number when you start to think about it, but you just don't think as clearly or as quickly. So here's a really interesting study that was, believe it or not, out of the University of Las Vegas here in the States. What they discovered was that risk-taking behavior increases the more sleep-deprived you are. And even if you know that the odds are against you, you don't care because you're so sleep deprived. So when you look at cognition, you know, cognition is really a matter of memory and decision making, you know, getting new information in, storing it, then making decisions and using that information in some productive way. And we know that sleep affects every single part of that process. You know, my good friend, Jim Quick, who I know you've had on here before, and who has got that amazing program that you guys do. He and I work together constantly because many of his patients are trying to improve their memory, but of course they can't do it without sleep. So it's pretty amazing. Now, why am I not surprised that it is the 
University of Las Vegas that is doing a study on sleep deprivation and risk-taking. That's the perfect range of studies for a university in Vegas. Now, let's get to some practical tips and advice that our listeners could bring into their life. Okay, so the first thing is, was really important. You said that we need around five sleep cycles a night. These cycles can range from uh, 75 minutes to 90 minutes. You have surprisingly shorter sleep cycles, which is why you can survive on six and a half hours. I'm guessing most people would need anywhere from seven to eight and that we should test this out. So that's tip number one. Now, what is your list of do's and don'ts when it comes to sleep? Tell us, what should we be paying attention to? What should we be doing? And then what are the myths to ignore and the things that we should not be doing? Absolutely. So I've created a little five-step plan that I think would benefit everybody, and I think you'd find it quite fascinating. So you're correct. First, you need to identify what time do you need to go to bed, and what time do you need to wake up, right? So that's all done with our bedtime calculator and our experiment that we just explained. So hopefully everybody gets the opportunity to take their socially determined wake-up time, count back seven and a half hours, and do this experiment for a week. But step number one, once you've established what your bedtime is, is make your wake-up time consistent. Now notice I didn't say you have to have your bedtime as consistent, but your wake-up time has to be consistent. And what I mean by that is, if you wake up at 6.30 during the week like I do, you gotta wake up at 6.30 on the weekends as well. Now that might not sound like a whole lot of fun to people. However, the more consistent you are with your ability to wake up, the more your circadian rhythm stays locked in place. That turns out to be one of the most critical components. If you take anything out of this podcast, it's wake up at the same time every single day. Here's what ends up happening, and part of the reason why my sleep cycle is smaller than most people's is because of my incredibly consistent bedtime and wake-up time. Because if my brain knows when to sleep, it actually goes into sleep faster and goes into deeper sleep faster, and I don't actually need as much sleep. So for any of you entrepreneurs out there who are saying, oh my gosh, Vision, Michael, there's no way I can get seven and a half hours sleep. I just have too much to do. If you keep your sleep cycle incredibly consistent, you actually will need less sleep, at least theoretically. And when you run the experiment, you can figure that out. So step one is to stick to one schedule. Step two has to do with caffeine. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't have any problem with people drinking caffeine, but most people don't realize caffeine has a half-life of between six and eight hours. So I ask all of my patients to stop drinking caffeine by 2 p.m., This gives you enough time to get at least half of the caffeine out of your system to allow for you to be going to bed around sort of in the 10, 10, 30 range, which believe it or not, turns out to be the average time that most people go to bed. So step number two is stop caffeine by 2 p.m. Okay, so in terms of caffeine, I remember talking to Dave Asprey of Bulletproof Coffee, right? And even Dave said what he recommends is two cups of caffeinated coffee, and if you must, three cups of decaf a day. So Dave and I are good friends, as you know. We've had this discussion many a time, and I'm a big fan of Bulletproof and Bulletproof coffee. As long as you're doing your decaf coffee after 2 p.m. and you have your caffeinated beverages earlier in the day, you got the sleep doctor's approval on that one, no problem. Phenomenal. Now, you said after 2 p.m. because most people go to bed around 10 to 11-ish, right? But what if you're a late sleeper? What if you're the type who goes to bed, like in my case, between midnight and 1 a.m.? Can I continue drinking coffee till 4? You could, but as a general rule, I like to keep people at the 2 p.m. range. Also, here's the thing is, remember, this is a half-life, which means that only half of the caffeine is eliminated in that period of time. So there's still some caffeine that could be you know, part of the whole situation, right? So when you kind of start to think through this idea, if you do stay up until 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning, 
That's okay. If you want to have caffeine until three o'clock or maybe even four o'clock, that's fine. But as a general rule, I tell people step number two, stop caffeine by 2 p.m. Now let's talk alcohol. Step number three has to do with alcohol. So alcohol turns out to be the number one sleep aid in the world. More people use alcohol to help them fall asleep than anything. And quite honestly, Vision, this is a terrible idea. There's a really big difference between going to sleep and passing out, okay? And people need to understand that difference. Alcohol, while it does make you feel tired and logy and kind of sleepy, it actually prevents you from getting into the deep, more refreshing, more physically restorative stages of sleep, which turn out to be stages three and four. It takes the human body approximately one hour to digest one alcoholic beverage. So what I ask people to do is if you're gonna be drinking at night, give yourself one hour per alcoholic beverage. So as an example, if you have three glasses of wine at dinner and you stop drinking at 8 p.m., then you're safe to go to bed at 11 and not have the bad effects of alcohol on your sleep. You see how I did that? I took the three drinks, I added three hours, tagged it onto the last sip of alcohol, and that is when my bedtime would be. So if I'm having three glasses of wine and I start drinking at eight, I'm ready to go to bed by 11. And you stop drinking at eight, then you go eight to nine, nine to 10, 10 to 11, and that's where you can go to bed safely and not have alcohol affect your sleep. That's if you drink three glasses of wine over the course of a meal and you stop drinking at 8 p.m. Okay, let's say I have a glass of wine at eight, I have a glass of wine at nine, I have a glass of wine at 10, Now, it takes an hour to digest each of those glasses, so I should still be ready to go to bed by 11, shouldn't I? Yes, you should. Okay. By the way, for those of you listening, I am not like that. I'm not a three wine a day person. I'm more like four glasses a week max. Just wanted to get that really clear for those of you who might have a rich social life. (laughs) Exactly. And I'm not a teetotaler. I don't have a problem with people drinking alcohol, but just, you know, you need to understand the health and the sleep effects. But wow, that's new to me. I did not know that. I really did not know that. I know so many people who say they go to bed better when they have a glass of whiskey. I didn't realize that it's depriving you of that stage four and stage five sleep. And I want to make one more clarification because I think this is an important one. If somebody has one glass of whiskey, one, just before bed, there is some data to show that for people with anxiety, it helps calm them down and helps them go to sleep. However, the timing turns out to be critical. So if you have your glass of whiskey and then you fall asleep about a half an hour later, then you're probably just fine. But it will still have an effect. It will actually prevent you from getting into some of those deep stages. So if you're really only going to get six hours of sleep, you really shouldn't be drinking right before bed. Mm, Got it. Okay, that's a really valuable tip. Let's go on to idea number four. Step number four has to do with exercise. Up until now, we've been talking a lot about the quantity of your sleep. How many minutes? What time should you go to bed? How long should you be in bed? But we really haven't talked a lot about the quality of your sleep. Exercise is the best possible way to improve the quality of your sleep. Now, I'm not saying you got to go out and run a marathon every day. The data is very consistent. 20 to 25 minutes of daily exercise, and please everybody check with your doctor to make sure that it's okay for you to exercise, will show you improvements, not only in the length of your sleep, but the depth of your sleep. 20 to 25 minutes a day. Okay. Now when you say exercise, what about walking? Absolutely. If you're walking your dog, if you're parking further away at work and walking through the parking lot, it almost doesn't matter. It's really more about movement, but it's got to be enough movement to get your heart rate up. 
So, you know, you need to give a little bit of umption in your gumption, as they say, to be able to get some exercise in that's going to be effective for sleep. Now, here's a little interesting tip. Many people find that if they exercise too close to bedtime, that it can have an effect on their ability to fall asleep, right? Because their body gets so revved up. So one of my recommendations here is, while I want you to exercise daily, approximately 25 minutes or more, remember, don't exercise within four hours of lights out because that might have an effect on your ability to fall asleep. Okay, so exercising anytime during the day is perfectly fine, just not four hours before it's time to go to bed. Exactly. Okay, now again, let's talk about a typical person going to bed at, say, midnight, right? You're saying there's no difference between exercising at 8 a.m. or exercising at 6 p.m., but you don't want to exercise after 8 p.m. Correct. Okay, that's helpful. Let's go on to the final idea. The final idea has to do with sunlight. So it turns out that every morning when you wake up, if you get some form of either direct sunlight, which is the best, or if you wake up in a part of the world where it doesn't happen to be a light in the morning, getting some form of light within 30 minutes of waking up is actually one of the best things that you can do to reset your circadian clock and keep your circadian rhythms functioning well. Some form of light within 30 minutes of waking up. For 15 minutes, right? So you need to be outside for 15 minutes. So what I tell people to do is take your dog for a walk in the morning or go out and get the paper that's at the end of the driveway, or you know, go out on your porch or patio area and have your morning cup of coffee outside. Now, granted, that's not always easy to do in the middle of the winter or in areas that are very dark, but if you do have that opportunity, direct sunlight is the best thing that you can do. The other thing that you can do if you don't have that opportunity is actually to purchase light bulbs that give you extra blue light. Now, people out there have probably heard quite a bit about blue light and what is it and how does it work. So if you don't mind, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent and teach people a little bit about blue light. Is that okay? So here's what we know is blue light is like coffee for the brain, okay? So when blue light comes into your eye, and by the way, the light itself is not the color blue. Blue represents the spectrum of light. All white light that we have in conventional light bulbs has many different colors within its spectrum. Inside that spectrum between 450 and 480 nanometers is called blue light. This light, this wavelength of light hits a particular cell in your eye called a melanopsin cell and turns off the melatonin faucet in your brain. This is great in the morning, right? And that's why I want people to get sunlight in the morning because we want to turn off that melatonin faucet in the morning because that's what gives many of the people that foggy brain in the morning, that hard to wake up type of thing. Also, by the way, if people are getting drowsy between one and three in the afternoon, when most people would normally have a siesta, instead of having a coffee break, it actually would make sense to have a sunshine break, walk outside, get a little fresh air, get a little sunshine, turns off that melatonin faucet in the middle of the day. And this is the way that you energize yourself. But you want to avoid blue light at night, right? Because remember, it's coffee for the brain. So in the evenings, you don't want to be looking at your devices, laptops, iPads, phones, what have you. That is fascinating. That's fascinating. Okay, so I want to run this by you. I was having dinner with biohacker Ben Greenfield recently. This was at AFES. We were exploring the theme of longevity. And Ben suggested the following. He said, firstly, within a house, replace your normal light bulbs with light bulbs with a slightly yellowish hue that kind of resembles old school candles, right? Well, not old school, but like back a hundred years ago when we spent our nights under candlelight, that was one tip. And then the second thing he said is, 
there is a way you can set the tint on your iPhone. And he showed me how to do this in my iPhone so that it has a reddish tint. And so there's less blue light emanating from your iPhone. Now, I'm curious to know what you think of that advice. Sure. So Ben and I are very good friends. I saw him last time he was here in LA and he told me he was heading out to A-Fest and he was super excited about it. So here's where the science comes into this. So in his first recommendation about replacing lights, the answer is yes. However, there are actually specific bulbs that you have to get in order to achieve this goal. There are bulbs called good night bulbs. There's a website, it's called lighting.science. And if people are interested in it, we can put it in the show notes. I can even probably get people a discount on the bulbs themselves. They run about $18 a bulb. And I have these bulbs actually in my children's rooms. So in their bedside table lamps and in their above lamps, like in the ceiling, I have all of these specialty light bulbs in there and they don't even know it, okay? But I'm trying to reduce the amount of blue light that they get in the evening. So I agree with Ben, but you actually have to have a specialty kind of bulb. Point number two, there was a study that came out six months ago from RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York, and they discovered that the night shift function on the iPhone has no effect. It is completely bogus, absolutely 100% no effect. So Apple actually created a health problem. People, the very last thing they do is use their cell phone. They're checking their Facebook or their email or their calendar for the next day, and they're getting this tremendous exposure to blue light. What I have my children doing and what I do is I actually wear blue blocker glasses. You may have heard of these from back in the 70s, but the truth of the matter is the technology has increased quite a bit and it's really quite good. Okay, so let's go deeper there. And now I'm asking because I know a lot of our listeners are going to be fascinated by this. And I'm fascinated because I'm the guy who reads on my iPad for about half an hour before going to bed. Yep. Bad idea. What I tell people all the time is I love iPads for reading. However, you got to wear the blue blocker glasses with them because the proximity of the blue light is pretty close to your face, right? It's 18 to 24 inches from your eyeballs. And you're saying the nighttime setting on these devices have no scientific basis. Ineffective, completely ineffective by a third party, very technical group out of New York. Okay, so that I understand, but there is another option. See, what Ben suggested is that you go to accessibility options and then under accessibility options, there's a way to add a red tint to your iPhone or your iPad. Right, so it doesn't actually change the frequency of the light. So think of it kind of like this. If you're listening to the radio, you can turn down the volume and you don't hear it as well. What you haven't done is you haven't changed the treble and the bass. And what I'm telling you is that what you really need to do is change the treble or the bass in that analogy. So even if you went to accessibility, even if you put the red tint on there, it's not changing the actual wavelength of light that's being emitted. The only way to do that is with an exterior filter like these blue blockers. I see. I see. I see. So you don't think in the near future, Apple or Samsung or any other of these manufacturers are going to be able to actually bring in a technology to adjust the spectrum of light being emanated from their LEDs. You're saying that we need glasses. Well, I'm saying that for now we need glasses, but there is a technology that's available, especially for laptops. It's called Flux, F-L-U-X. If you just Google it, it's F-L-U.X. I have this on my computer, and this actually is a software that you download for free, and it will actually take it from your laptop, and it will actually change the frequency. I see. Got it, got it, got it. And this has been scientifically validated? Absolutely, it has. Okay, so just get flux.com. That's what it is. J-U-S-T 
G-E-T-F-L-U-X dot com. Now, this is brilliant because I do my best writing just before going to bed. These are phenomenal tips, Michael. What else do you think is important for us to know when it comes to optimizing our sleep? Well, I would say the five tips that I gave you at first are really very, very critical. But the biggest thing that I've found in terms of sleep optimization is becoming educated, really understanding. First of all, making sure that you don't have a sleep disorder is really the most critical first step. Do you snore? Could you have sleep apnea, which is a situation that's very serious where you actually stop breathing in your sleep? Could you have narcolepsy? Could you have periodic limb movements? Believe it or not, there are 88 different sleep disorders out there. So the very first thing I do in all of my optimization courses and all the work that I do, because I do a tremendous amount of speaking on sleep for peak performance, is we screen everybody. Make sure nobody's got a sleep disorder. So step number one, you know, make sure you don't have a sleep disorder. Step number two, calculate your bedtime. Step number three, go through those five steps that we were talking about earlier, because that's certainly something that's going to be helpful for you. And then if you're really trying to do as big an optimization plan as you can, then the one thing that people out there should consider is napping. Most people don't think about it, but I actually teach people how to strategically nap, meaning I teach them what they do in terms of when should they nap during the day, the length of time that they should have naps, things like that. I remember reading about a NASA study that showed that a 26-minute nap could improve performance by as much as 30%. You're actually correct. And believe it or not, that study also showed that a seven-minute nap could actually improve performance by, I think it was like eight or 9%. So it's pretty interesting. Even a quick one can be very, very helpful for people as well. So there's a lot of different kinds of naps. The first one is what I call the power nap. So this is a nap that lasts approximately 25 minutes. Depending upon what time of day you take the nap, by the way, it will do different things to you. So if you take a nap very early in the morning time, like around nine o'clock in the morning, so let's say you get up at five and you wanna take a nap at nine, that will actually increase levels of creativity and memory. If you take a nap more in the one to three in the afternoon time, that will actually increase alertness. And if you take a nap in the later part of the evening, that can actually improve focus. Wow, okay, so that I did not know. And all of this validated by science? All of it validated by science. There's a second kind of nap that's really interesting. This is a technique that I developed, and I call it the nap-a-latte. You're gonna love this one. And Dave over at Bulletproof loves this one as well. So what I have people do is if they're really exhausted, right before they're about ready to take their nap, they take a six ounce cup of black coffee, okay? And you put three ice cubes in it and you drink it as quick as you can. The ice cubes are just to cool the liquid down. Then you take your nap immediately for 25 minutes. What happens is, is you get enough stage one and stage two sleep to remove that sleepiness factor. The caffeine is about ready to kick in when you wake up, you're good for four hours, guaranteed. Wow, okay, so a cup of black coffee with ice cubes, you're gonna chug that thing, and as soon as you chug it, you take a nap for 20 minutes. The caffeine kicks in as soon as you wake up. You bet. Now, why not just take the coffee after you emerge from your nap? Because at the point of nap is when you're really exhausted. So neurologically speaking, we need to clear the adenosine from your system. And by having caffeine directly behind the adenosine, it actually accelerates the breakdown of the adenosine, which is actually what's making you feel sleepy. I see. And then taking that chug of coffee just before taking that nap isn't going to affect the quality of that nap in any way. It will not because it takes 25 minutes for the caffeine to actually reach plasma concentration levels to kick in. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. Guys, if you go ahead and you try that, now what do you call this technique? I call it the Napa Latte. 
Guys, if you try the Napa Latte, please tweet about it, share it on Instagram, and tag Michael Bruce. Michael, are you on Twitter or Instagram? I am. I'm on both of them as The Sleep Doctor. Fantastic. Just tag The Sleep Doctor and tag Vision, V-I-S-H-E-N. I can't wait to see what type of success our listeners have with a Napa Latte. Now, there's one caution here, which is don't do a Napa Latte every day, okay? Like, you shouldn't use it as a replacement for sleep. Because some people will say, well, if I only get five hours of sleep tonight, even though I know I need six and a half, I'll use a Napa latte to kind of get me there. And all I'm saying is you can't fool mother nature for very long. It becomes a crutch. I get what you mean. Great. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Any words of wisdom or new techniques for our listeners? Here's what I'll tell you is sleep is an ever-changing field. And so I'm very excited because I learn something new about sleep literally every month. So if folks out there have the opportunity to check out my website at thesleepdoctor.com, sign up for my newsletters, and I don't drive people crazy, but you will receive life-changing, sleep-changing information every month that will be fascinating to you, and uh, it really help you out. Phenomenal, and I'll be following you, and uh, please follow Michael on The Sleep Doctor on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much for that incredible advice, Michael. I love how you actually make sleeping fun. I like this. It was great having you as a guest on our podcast. And those of you who are listening, thank you so much. And please know that we love getting your feedback on the podcast. We love hearing from you guys. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, please go to iTunes or whatever other podcast listening tool you're using and rate us. Just give us a rating. We definitely appreciate that in exchange for this beautiful free information that we've been providing. Thank you, guys. And thank you, Michael. It was my pleasure, Bishop. I want to wish everybody out there sweet dreams. Take care, guys. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.